Good morning. In the week leading up to the Lord Jesus' crucifixion and death, uh, he entered into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. We know the story. We're familiar with it. On Palm Sunday, we celebrate it. Uh, But when he's entering into Jerusalem, the crowds have lined the streets. They're crying out. They're waving palm branches. They're laying their cloaks down on the road. And they're shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so this crowd is filled with wonder. They're filled with, with anticipation. They're seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of prophecy, though we know it wasn't exactly in the way that they expected But we read in Luke chapter 19 that as the crowds are shouting out to Jesus, um, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. It's remarkable that, you know, we hear some of those same phrases echoed this time of year throughout the world uh, during Christmas time. Glory to the newborn king. Let there be peace on earth, Gloria and Excelsis Deo. And it's remarkable that many of the people singing those same phrases are, in fact, spiritually dead, are stones themselves. So, in a real sense, the Lord has caused stones to cry out. And this is the wondrous things about Christmas time that even hardened atheists will unknowingly sing about the Messiah, will unknowingly sing about the Son of God. The only time of year that you'll hear the glorious truths of the Incarnation echoed throughout the halls of public schools and in every shopping mall you go into. Our stones are crying out. Because those who celebrate Christmas, we realize that there's a certain wonder that comes with the season. Right, the secular world can't really put a finger on what it is, And so you watch the Hallmark movies, you see that the magic of Christmas is about loving other people, or it's about being happy in whatever situation you're in this Christmas, find joy inside of you. Or it's about finding the ever-elusive Christmas spirit when all just doesn't seem to be going well. I'm not bashing Polar Express or Hallmark movies or anything like that, because these things are good. We should find joy in whatever circumstance. But Christians should realize, of all people, Christians should realize um, that, you know, there's, there's something different that makes this season wondrous. It's not mere nostalgia, it's not traditions, it's not friends and family, and it's certainly not physical gifts. Because we know that when we're talking about Christmas, we're, we're really talking about the wonder of the incarnation. God made flesh. And so how, in the midst of all this chaos, in the midst of shopping, in the midst of bad acting on Christmas movies, how, in the midst of all of this, do we regain the wonder that should accompany this time of year? How do we do it? Well, there's a passage that has been particularly helpful for me as I've asked this question of myself, because I love Christmas time, and it, and it has been a battle to, to sort of find the Christmas spirit every year. But there's a passage that's helped, and it's in 1 Timothy chapter 1 might seem an odd passage for uh, a Christmas uh, focus, but uh, this, is, this is the direction we're going in this morning. I, I really do pray that um, the Lord would speak through it. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 15, the Apostle Paul writes, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, That in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, 
to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's bow together this morning. Father, your plan is good. From before time, you've known your plan. You've known that you would send your son. You've known that your people would rebel. You've known that you would bring them back to you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love for the Father and for your people. And so I pray that as we study this text this morning, that you would become ever more glorious in our hearts. God, help us to see the wonders of you this Christmas. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So in this letter to Timothy, Paul is is sort of laying out, um, he's briefly recounted his testimony. Paul is writing to Timothy, his true child in the faith, um, and he he tells him his testimony. Not that Paul really needed to recount his testimony to anybody, because he would have been well known. I mean, this is the guy that was a murderer, that was a persecutor of the church. He was going house to house, ravaging the church. Um, But everybody knows by this point how the Lord had appeared to him on the road to Damascus, and he had this dramatic life change in this conversion testimony, and so he goes from being a persecutor of the gospel to being a proclaimer of the gospel, and this is his testimony that everybody would have known. But he reminds Timothy of this, and then in these few verses that we just read, he gives us some points to consider, some some points of wonder, if you will. That if we're going to regain the wonder of Christmas as believers, as God's children, if we're going to regain the wonder of Christmas, we need to consider a few things. The first thing we need to wonder at that Paul mentions here is his coming. We're supposed to wonder at the Lord's coming. Now, I fear that the truth of the incarnation, the truth of Jesus taking on flesh, as grand and as magnificent as it is, um, it's become too familiar to us. Every year we celebrate these truths. Kids put on plays. Famous people sing bad renditions of Christmas carols. Uh, The house down the road has a great giant inflatable nativity scene. We celebrate these things every year. And this is dangerous because a lot of times our flesh takes something regular, however exciting it may be, and makes it something familiar. Something that we celebrate every year, no matter how exciting it is, our flesh will take that and it'll make it familiar to us. Do you remember the first time that you drove with your driver's license, the freedom that you felt, being able to hit the roads with no limit, well, probably some limits, but with no limits, you could drive yourself anywhere. I I remember I couldn't even sleep the night before uh, because I knew the freedom of driving was going to be mine the next day. Um, Didn't even care that I was going to have to drive a beat-up old station wagon because I was excited to drive. Um, But, you know, I've driven so much now that I don't think twice about hopping in the car to go somewhere. It doesn't even cross my mind. I've become familiar with it, so it's lost its wonder. Or do you remember the first time you held a smartphone in your hand? You know, back in the day when smartphones were a new thing, you had a smartphone in your hand, you could connect to the internet, but it also had a calculator, right? So, and it was wondrous, there were so many things that you could do with it, but now, even 10 models newer, the idea of a smartphone is old news. We've become so familiar with it that it's lost its wonder. A regular thing has become familiar. And this is what it can be like for us around Christmas time. Because even when we hear the story of the shepherds and Mary and Joseph, it, you know, it's just the same old story we've always heard. Every year it's the same story. So how do we fix this? 
Because it's not a problem with the story, it's a problem with us. How do we fix this? Well, we meditate on his coming. We meditate on the Lord Jesus coming. Three things in particular about it. Number one, we meditate on the remarkability of his coming. Number two, the reality of his coming. And number three, the reason for his coming. So first, we meditate on the remarkability of the Son of God taking on flesh. How remarkable it truly is. The nature of the incarnation. Paul says in verse 15, that Christ Jesus came into the world. He came into the world. Now this statement implies what we already know from the whole rest of scripture, that this isn't the beginning of the Son of God. Christmas is not the beginning of the Son of God. In fact, there is no beginning of the Son of God. He is eternally begotten of the Father, if you want to use that language. But John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And then the Lord Jesus himself in John chapter 17, he prays to the Father. He says, now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Christmas isn't the beginning of the Son of God. And we could go on and on with other passages with evidence of this fact that the Son of God has existed for all eternity. But this passage in 1 Timothy, along with the witness of all Scripture, makes it clear that though he has existed eternally, there was a point in time that the eternal Son of God took on flesh to come into the world. And that is the wonder of Christmas. He came into the world but he didn't come into existence because he has existed eternally. The eternal son of God didn't resign his godhood, but instead assumed a human nature as well. Born of a virgin, he took on flesh and walked the earth fully God, fully man. And so when we consider this, when we try to think about this for more than two seconds, this really is a hard truth to grasp. It really is remarkable because our finite human minds really can't fully understand what happens in the incarnation. We can't really wrap our minds around this fact. And for some people, this poses a real problem. For some people, the the mystery of the incarnation poses a real problem. Because we live in a day when we can have explanations for everything in just a few seconds. We have literally have supercomputers in our pockets. If I want to know the conversion rate of U.S. dollars to Japanese yen, um, I ask Siri. If I want to know the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow, I ask Alexa. If I want to know who let the dogs out, well, I guess really nobody knows that, but I think it was the Baja men. You know, we, we can know anything we want to at just a push of the button. We live in an age of information, an age of understanding. We have a desire. We have a need to know and to understand everything. But we literally cannot comprehend the eternal Son of God taking on flesh how he was and is simultaneously omnipresent and located, localized in a human body. How he was omnipotent, yet at the same time he grew weary. How he has two natures in full cooperation with one another. It's, it's too big of a truth to fully understand. But that's a very good thing. Because contrary to what our culture says a lot of times, it's a good thing every once in a while to just sit in the I don't know to stew in the mystery, to recognize a mystery as a mystery and realize just how small we actually are. 
Because just because we can't fully understand something doesn't mean it's not profoundly true. J.I. Packer says this. He says, the incarnation, Son of God taking on flesh, the incarnation is in itself an unfathomable mystery. But it makes sense of everything else that the New Testament contains. Charles Wesley wrote a little-known hymn back in the 1700s called Glory Be to God on High. And it talks about the incarnation. The first verse says, Glory be to God on high, and peace on earth descend. Now God comes down, he bows the sky, and shows himself our friend. God the invisible appears, God the blessed, the great I am. He sojourns in this veil of tears, and Jesus is his name. And then verse 3, See the eternal Son of God, a mortal Son of man, now dwelling in an earthly clod whom heaven cannot contain. Stand amazed, ye heavens, look at this. See the Lord of earth and skies, low humbled to the dust he is, and in a manger lies. So we meditate on the remarkability, just the nature of the incarnation, how we can't fully understand it, how it is so much bigger than us, and we sit in the mystery. We meditate on the remarkability of it. But we also consider the reality of it. The fact that this isn't just an idea. This, this actually happened. The incarnation, the Son of God actually took on flesh. When we examine the grand narrative of Scripture, all the way from Genesis to Revelation, we see a story of God's people rebelling against their creator, running from their creator. But God himself goes and searches them out. See, since... Since Adam and Eve's sin in Genesis chapter 3, humanity has been running from God, having enmity with God. So God would have had every right to just leave mankind to their own devices, step back, and let them have what's coming to them. And yet, time and time again in Scripture, we see the recurring theme of God with us. And here at Christmas, we see the embodiment, the literal embodiment of Emmanuel, of God with us. See, God didn't leave us alone. He sought us out. And we marvel at that fact. And here, thousands of years later, after Genesis 3, and the Christmas story, thousands of years after Genesis chapter 3, of the fall of, of mankind, we see Jesus, the, the offspring promised to Eve that would crush the head of the serpent. So we marvel that he came, the reality of the incarnation. It's not just an abstract idea. The Son of God literally took on flesh at a point in history, and he, he came for his people. So we marvel at the reality of his coming. But Paul recognized that the Lord's coming was inseparable from his mission. So we meditate on the remarkability of his coming. We meditate on the reality of his coming. But we also meditate on the wonder of the reason for his coming. Verse 15, he says, This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This was his mission. This is why he came. Jesus himself said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. And I think too often, from the time we're kids, I think too often we tell the Christmas story as just a one-off Bible story. You know, we see the Bible as just this collection of a bunch of different stories that don't really interweave together at all. And so we tell the Christmas story in the same way. It's storybook Christianity. And we tell, well, Mary and Joseph had a baby named Jesus. And we don't connect it to the Old Testament at all. We don't really connect it to the New Testament. Yeah, we might reference a couple prophecies that Isaiah made. We might say that Jesus was our Savior. But we don't really connect it with the whole narrative of Scripture. 
How often do we sit and wonder that, that Jesus, this baby in the manger, came to save his people from their sins? And there's, there's a reason that many people don't want to consider this. They want to leave Jesus as a baby in the manger. Because if we're really saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, if we're really saying that this baby in a manger came into the world to save sinners, we're saying two things. Number one, that sinners need saving. And number two, that sinners can't save themselves. That's a hard truth to swallow. Because in saying that Jesus, in saying that God came down to us, we're saying that we cannot go to God on our own. We're saying that no matter how hard we work, no matter how well we can follow rules, no matter how pious we may be, it won't be enough. We're saying that because God wanted a relationship with us, he stooped down to our level. We can't go to his. See, at the heart of the incarnation, at the heart of the Christmas story, it's a very clear, very humbling message. You are not good enough. That's why Jesus had to come. No matter how hard you try, you won't be able to keep the righteous requirements of righteous living. You won't be able to live up to God's standard on your own. And because God wanted a relationship with us, he had to condescend to us since we could not ascend to him. But this is the other very clear, very humbling message at the heart of the Christmas story. You're not good enough, but God loves you anyway. Paul says in verse 14, just before this, it says, the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This baby in the manger would one day save his people from their sins. And we know that it wasn't just his coming as a baby that saves us. We know that that baby would grow to be a man. We know that the same delicate hands that reached out, grabbed onto his mother's finger, would grow to one day be stretched out on a tree. The same he- small head that Joseph gently kissed would grow to one day feel the sting and burn of a crown of thorns. The same smooth back that Mary lovingly stroked would grow to one day be beaten and whipped. The same round cheeks that felt the loving kiss from a loving mother would one day feel the pain and humiliation of being spat upon by onlookers. The same ears that heard the tender shushing while in the manger would eventually hear shouts of crucify him. And the same thin mouth that cooed and cried like all babies do would one day call out from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do and would cry out with a loud voice, it is finished. See, the only reason we celebrate the birth of Jesus is because we celebrate his death and his resurrection. We cannot separate the manger from the cross because without his death and without his resurrection, his birth is meaningless. The mission would be a failure. If we leave Jesus as a baby in the manger, we have missed the point because this baby wasn't born just to lead a good life, not just to one day heal the sick, give sight to the blind, feed thousands of people, raise the dead. No, this baby in a manger was born to die for his people, to take the punishment for his people's sin. And this is precisely what the angel told Joseph. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then after Jesus is born, when Mary and Joseph take him into the temple, as they're supposed to do according to the law, they they meet Simeon. And Simeon says to Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And to Mary, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This child was born to die. 
This was his mission, to save sinners. The only way to fulfill that mission was to humble himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we're called to wonder at the coming of the Son of God. We're called to wonder at the remarkability, just there's the sheer fact that God took on flesh. We're called to wonder at the remarkability. We're called to wonder at the reality of his coming, that this actually happened, and we're supposed to wonder at the reason for his coming, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And returning to our text in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul knew very well that this isn't just an abstract truth. If you look at verse, verse, verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. This isn't just abstract for Paul. It is deeply personal. So the second point of wonder this Christmas is to wonder at your own salvation. Wonder at your salvation. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. But to do this, to wonder at our salvation, we need to first recognize our need for mercy. If you look at the context of what Paul is saying in chapter 1, you know, earlier on in, uh, in the chapter, he says in verse 8, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly, for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, if there's anything else that is contrary to sound doctrine. So he lays out, this is what the law is for. These are sinners. These are transgressors. These are people who have broken the law. And yet here we see in verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I'm the worst of all of them. That's what Paul is saying here. This is deeply personal for Paul. And so when we look at what he's saying, you know, earlier on in verse 12, he says that I, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent man, 12 and 13. I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. I am the chief of all sinners. Now, most scholars um, place Paul's writing in this letter um, toward the end of his life. So it's not early on in his ministry. It's toward the end of his life. So what that means is there have been decades since the time Paul was a persecutor, since the time he was a blasphemer, since the time he considers himself to be that. And yet we see, I am chief of sinners. This is decades later, but he doesn't forget his own sinfulness. And we see this in other letters as well. Paul continues to marvel his whole life that God saved him. 1 Corinthians 15, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Ephesians 3, 8, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, I'm the very least of all believers, this grace was given. So we take the truth that we just addressed, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and we need to recognize that I, you, we are those sinners. And I think the tendency is, the longer that we're believers, the tendency of our flesh is to think that, well, of course God saved me. I mean, I was in a Christian home, of course God saved me. And so we're to, we sort of lose that wonder that God actually saved us. But you'll not know the glory of the manger until you know the gravity of your sin. 
Recognize your own desperate need for mercy. We all need mercy. Realize the depth of your sin, the depth of your rebellion against the holy God. Remember what God has saved you from. So recognize your need for mercy, and then two, also receive the mercy that he freely gives. In verse 16, we see Paul say, however, for this reason, I obtained mercy. I received mercy. So we realize that there's nothing good in us. There's nothing I did to receive this mercy. In fact, a more literal translation of, of Paul is, for this reason, I was mercy. God did the action. The, the obtained isn't even in the Greek. It's I was mercied. God gave me mercy. In verses 13 and 14, Paul notes that he was given mercy because of his ignorance and that the the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So you and I, we weren't there when the Lord Jesus was born on Christmas Day, but it impacts our whole lives. I wasn't at the foot of the cross when Jesus was crucified, but that literally affects every day of my life. We weren't there when the Lord walked out of the empty tomb But because of that fact, we can go on living and we have an eternal hope. See, he did all of this in my place. He lived, he died, and he rose again in my place. So I am in Christ. See, we can't speak of the Christmas narrative, the birth of Christ. We can't speak of it in the abstract. That's my savior that was born in Bethlehem. We have to move from I love Christmas to I need Christmas. I need Christmas because it's the only way I could be with God is if God came to me. That's the only way I could be with God. He freely gave me mercy. Even though I was a depraved wretch, he freely gave me mercy. And this is what Paul is saying here. Wonder at your salvation. Marvel at your salvation and never stop wondering that you are saved. Always be amazed amazed that God saved a sinner like you, like me. Despite all that you've done, despite the wickedness of my heart, despite the sinfulness of our minds, God came down to us as a child in Bethlehem. Him. Never stop marveling, never stop wondering at that glorious truth because that is the heart of the gospel. And then Paul closes this section with a beautiful doxology which brings us to this last point of wonder. Wonder at your God. This seems like a logical thing to do, but we often forget it. See, all of this, everything we've talked about, the incarnation, your salvation, it, it's supposed to lead us to worship God himself. We don't worship the idea of salvation. We worship our Savior. See, Christmas is for us, but it's not about us. In the same way, our salvation is for us, but it's not about us. So we see in this passage that one of the ways we're called to wonder at our God is to point others to him. Paul says that he was saved, that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. In other words, Jesus saved Paul to show off, right? If he can save a murderer, if he can save a persecutor of the church, if he can save somebody that was going door to door and ravaging the church, well, who is there that he can't save? And nobody is off limits to the saving grace of Jesus. So people look at Paul's testimony, people look at Paul's conversion, and they say, wow, if Jesus can save that guy... Well, he can save me. In the same way, people should be able to look at your testimony and not just see how you've really turned your life around. They should see your Savior. When you tell people your testimony, they should see your Savior, not just that you're living a better life now. 
They should see God showing off in our testimony, doing the impossible, ending addiction, changing hearts, empowering forgiveness. When people look at our testimony, they should see God. We're saved to point others to God. And the topic of today, when people look at our Christmas, as we celebrate the birth of our Savior, they should see God. So when people look at your Christmas traditions, the gift giving, the caroling, the roast goose, if you do that, do they see Jesus? Or do they just see a happy family that's doing nice things around Christmas time? We're saved to point others to God. Our Christmas should point others to God. But we also praise him. We praise him ourselves. We're saved to praise him. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Ephesians 1, 5, and 6, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This should be the natural response of a regenerated heart that recognizes and receives the mercy it so desperately needs is to praise his Savior. See, Maybe the greatest wonder of Christmas is that we know this Savior that was born in Bethlehem. As believers, we have a relationship with this Savior that was born in Bethlehem. He's not just a historical figure. This isn't just a history book with people that are long dead. You know, Christ Jesus, the same Christ Jesus that came into the world to save sinners, he is alive today. And if you're a believer, he is living in you today. And so we have a relationship with this same Jesus that was born in a manger. All right, so... If your Christmas traditions don't lead yourself, don't lead others to worship, find some new ones. If what you do around Christmas time doesn't lead you to worship the God that Paul talks about, the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, doesn't lead you to worship the God who's made known in Christ Jesus, they're not very good traditions. Because even if we deprive ourselves of the joy of singing praises to our King, the joy of singing praises to our Savior this Christmas. Even if we were to remain silent, the stones would cry out. There were no throngs of people lining the streets with palm branches to welcome the new king into the world that first Christmas. Just a few shepherds. And yet here we are, just over 2,000 years later, filled with wonder, singing, He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we confess this morning that too often our traditions, our celebrations, our activities around Christmas time, though they may pay lip service to the true meaning, the true remarkability of the incarnation, Lord, it's so easy for us to forget the wonder and to fail to wonder at coming of your son. So God, over the next few weeks, Lord, we pray that you would put people, that you would put circumstances, that you'd put reminders in our path that would point us to you.
that would remind us of this great mercy that we've been shown, remind us of this great truth of God with us. We thank you that you did not give us what we deserve. We thank you for your son. We give you the glory. It's in Jesus' name.